right. Um, since I there are so many of you that I don't know, um, I'm going to go ahead and tell the the, the long version of, of my story, which um, actually the more I tell it, the shorter it gets. Um, you know, I I I, I drank. I, I I didn't start particularly young. I didn't have a bad childhood. I didn't have a bad family life. Things were were pretty good. Um, I was always at the kind of the Shall I say the lower end of my group? I, um, if I hung around people who were smart, they tended to be a little smarter than me. But I, I hung, I hung along. Um, if they were, you know, well, whatever they did, I was kind of on on the fringe of the group. I don't know why that was or even is. It is still to this day. But um, anyway, I, um, I, I started drinking a little bit in high school socially and. Um, a little bit in college, a little more in college. In fact, quite a bit in college, um, but no more than the, the than the average person did. I didn't think, and there were always people that drank a lot more than me, and a lot of people that drank a lot less. Um, but it didn't. It didn't. Seem, well, I say it didn't seem to be a problem, although I didn't do well in college. I did do. I spent way too much time partying, and I uh, spent four years at a at a good school, uh, but didn't graduate. And um, so I went to work after college and kind of stayed in, in that job. I, I ran a security department at a hospital for 20 years and um, made a lot of a lot of good friends. And, um, you know, again, part I, I, I smoked marijuana almost every day. I, I um, drank frequently, although not daily at that point. Um, and um, I guess if I look back on it now, I could say I've always drunk alcoholically, but I think anybody could look back and say that. I'm not, I'm not sure how alcoholic I was from the beginning, but I do know that um, I, I, I drank more and more as, as time progressed. Uh, I was in that job for, as I say, 20 some years and um, I liked it. And then I, I through a circum, group of circumstances, um, I got involved with a, um, a group, a, a theater group, that were fans of a particular um, singer-songwriter uh, named Steve Shacklin and uh, and his partner uh, Jimmy Brochu, and they had written a um, a musical comedy about AIDS called The Last Session, and it played um, off Broadway in New York, and it was actually getting ready to close off Broadway, but. A number of us had been online. We didn't have the internet like this. We certainly had nothing like this at the time. We had email lists where we communicated by on uh, by groups of emails. Um, we'd send an email and it'd go out to everybody on the list, and then somebody would respond. It would go out to everybody, and we just we communicated that way. And um, so the 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 play, the musical, was getting ready to close off Broadway, and a bunch of us just decided that we were going to go. And meet in New York and see it. And there were people from all over, uh, Cincinnati, Seattle, San Francisco, um, uh, people from New York, people from, um, you know, I was from D.C. and a couple other people from D.C. went up uh, to, to um, see this performance. And it was, it was quite touching, quite moving. And um, it turned out it was actually the 100th performance of the, of the musical. And so they had a little celebration involving that. Our friend, the, the singer-songwriter, the lyricist, um, wasn't there, but his partner was, and he took part in 
some of the celebrations afterwards. And um, anyway, I, I kind of, I, I managed to get into this group at that time. And um, then, uh, I don't know, I guess a few weeks later, um, actually a few months later, it moved to um, LA. It moved to the Tiffany Theater on, um, in West Hollywood. And um, I guess New Year's came up. The following New Year's came up, and the um, the singer was going to put on a special presentation. He was going to have a. They were going to do the concert during the evening. I mean, the, the play during the evening, and then he was going to have a concert at midnight for all of his friends. And um, I had no intention of going. I had been to Los Angeles as a child. I didn't like it. The sky was brown. The the place was dirty. It was it was most unpleasant. And we're talking in the in the late sixties. It, it, it just wasn't, it, it had no appeal to me at all. But a friend of mine really wanted to go and he had no connections in Los Angeles. So um, I agreed to go along and uh, he, he said he'd fly me out if, if I would um, find us a place to stay. And so I, we did that. And um, while uh, we rather, we actually stayed with, with the playwright and his partner um, at their apartment in, um, in North Hollywood. And um, so while we were out here, I met somebody at the performance, um, a, a beautiful young man, and, and we hit it off very well. And we, we just talked uh, incessantly during the, during the breaks during the show. And then uh, during the course of the weekend that I was there, uh, that I was here, um, we found every moment we could to be together. And we became very dear friends. And over the course of the next several months, we became uh, long distance lovers. Um, we would make any excuse we could to be together and um, went to every event that we possibly could, um, could manage to go to. And we met at a friend's house in Cincinnati in a, a, a place in Philadelphia and somewhere in, uh, you know, just wherever, wherever there was an event that we could both uh, enjoy, uh, we would meet and make a, a weekend of it and um, then do that again in another few weeks. And eventually um, a mutual friend of ours um, uh, said, you know, guys, why are you, why are you staying apart? You really should be together. And she put a bug in my ear and, and, and I thought she was right. And so we started working towards the idea of getting together. Well, he had a, a much better job than I and, um, I decided that I was going to move up to LA because I had, a, while I had a good job and I had a long-standing job, it wasn't a great job, and I knew I could do okay out here. So I decided to um, cash in what I had and and move to Los Angeles, and to move in with him. Well, uh, it didn't work out well. It, it worked out for a period of time. It it lasted. It was good for about six months, but um, we we made it last for a year. And then under circumstances having to do with alcohol, we, we broke up and eventually I was given a very short time to get out of the apartment. I had to be out in the next week. And um, so I had to scramble and find a place to live and it, it all happened, it all worked out. I uh, found a nice apartment in Hollywood um, just off the, um, the, the Walk of Fame, two blocks from the Walk of Fame. And at that time that was not a, 
very nice part of town. It was kind of the sleazy part of town. And, um, but it was fun. It was a lot of fun. I was glad to have moved in there. But what, what had happened was um, my drinking had progressed, you know, slowly, kind of in the background. I didn't even notice that it was progressing the way it was. Um, and it didn't hurt me in my, in my job. It didn't hurt me uh, when I was back east. Um, but it, it did sneak up on me and began to hurt me while I was out here in, in Los Angeles. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it, it eventually it, it made things rough between uh, Michael and me and um, also our, our group. Uh, I had said some things and done some things and really insulted some people. And um, so when things broke up, I basically didn't have a whole lot of friends because the friends that I did have were mutual friends and they all kind of stayed with Michael. So I moved into my place in Hollywood and um, you know, I drank. I, I drank a, a more than a little, but not a whole lot. Um, and uh, this was, you know, 20 years ago. So it was around the time of, of 9-11. And uh, I didn't have a TV at the time. Uh, so I found out about 9-11 when I was on my way to work. I worked out in the valley. I was living in Hollywood. And um, I heard this uh, NPR newscast as I was going through the Cuenca Pass. And... Um, it just slowly dawned on me, it was like, oh my God, we're, we're at war. You know, this was just a horrible thing. The, the world changed uh, 20 years ago. It changed very, very quickly and, and not exactly subtly. But um, I, uh, I got a TV shortly after that because I didn't want to be totally in the dark from then on. But again, my drinking just, just continued to progress. I um, found a bar that I liked. It was an old Hollywood bar. And in fact, it, Turned out it wasn't at the time, it was the second oldest gay bar in Hollywood. Uh, became the oldest gay bar in Hollywood when the old Friendship closed. Um, a place called um, the, um, uh, the Spotlight Room on Coenga Boulevard. And I, it was a place that scared the hell out of me because there was uh, a lot of ne'er-do-wells that would stand around out front smoking. Uh, there was a, a black sheet that covered the doorway that you had to push to get inside. And I don't know how many times I drove by it and walked by it and went by it before I got up the courage to go into the place because it just, it felt very foreboding. It felt very un uncomfortable. Um, I went in, it turned out to be the friendliest place I'd ever been to. Uh, I walked in, I was, um, met a bartender right away. He introduced me to some people, introduced me to, the first person he introduced me to is still a friend today. And um, I was, I was, immediately taken in, immediately well-liked, and I, I liked the people, and we had um, a lot of fun there, and I would go, uh, well, I started going every every weekend uh, in the evenings, and then I went on a Thursday one time, and there was a fellow there that was a um, an author, and he kind of held court on Thursday nights. There was a group that would sit around him and talk about, um, about writing, about uh, Good art. He was a professor of journalism at um, USC, and he'd written uh, books about um, history books, mainly history books, but he had also written some novels and all sorts of things. He was quite an accomplished fellow. And um, so I went on Thursday nights. We had a we had a great group that met on Thursdays for uh, general discussion, and um, we we really liked each other a lot. And so I. Um, 
was now going Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And then, you know, I didn't go Sunday because Monday was a work day, but then on the other hand, so was Friday. So I, I started going on Sundays as well. And time just progressed. And I just started going more and more often. I enjoyed going to the bar. I felt at home there. It was very much my cheers. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a place I liked quite a bit. So I, I started going more and more often. I um, was, had a good job by then um, in the Valley where I did, did work with an advertising company. It was a targeted advertising company. And I started in customer service and moved my way into information systems and IT and, um, and was pretty successful. But my drinking was getting to be pretty, pretty heavy at that point. Um, my boss was the director of operations, uh, vice president of operations, and he didn't know. And he, he told me, he said he didn't know anything about alcohol, didn't understand it at all, wasn't a drinker. He drank one or two beers a year um, and, you know, didn't really understand the, the effect that it had on me and, and tolerated my stuff. I was good at what I did. And um, so I, between he and I, we made a whole lot of money for the company um over the course of several years and um but i was very unreliable and they had to keep finding different ways of compensating me or um handling handling me so that uh i wasn't getting paid for not being there basically because i would sometimes not show up for a day a couple of days a week sometimes as much as two weeks at a time um and um and then come back and get back to work. And we, again, make a lot of money for the company. So um, that went on um, for a while. And all the whole time, I'm, I'm drinking more, drinking more during the week, um, taking more days off, going to the bar first thing. The bar opened at 6.30 in the morning or 6 o'clock, whatever time it was legal to open in LA. And there were times that I would get there before they'd even open and knock on the door to be let in. Um, it was, uh, and I, I drank at home some, but I, I was making enough money that I could afford to drink at the bar most of the time. Um, so that went on, um, and I, and I became less and less reliable, but at the same time, I was very valuable to the company to the point that I was uh, made employee of the year and uh, went with the president's club to Cancun with a bunch of the salespeople and, and managers of the company. Um, but, you know, even there, I mean, I was just, if they wanted to find me, they went to one of the bars and that's where, they, that's where I would be, um, getting drunk from morning till night. And so the, the work continued until my, um, my boss, my benefactor, um, he, he was so successful that he retired at age 45. And we had a big party for him as he retired. And, um, and the day after he retired, I was, um, I was let go. And that really didn't surprise me. I, I was surprised I hadn't been let go long before that. But, um, but I was let go and I was, was fired in a very nice way. I was fired in a very kind way. Um, I was um, given a paper to sign a non-disclosure agreement, which I had actually signed when I first started working there, but they had me re-sign it as I left. And in return for doing so, they gave me quite a bit of money. Um, during that time, my mom had also passed away. And I had actually gone back to DC to be with her. Um, 
just before she died and um, had um, had some amends to make. I, I avoided her calls and, and it was a that was kind of the sad part of my life, a very sad part. And um, so I I got there and I'm not sure, I think she recognized me. I'm sure she knew I was there, uh, but you know, I couldn't directly make the amends that I needed to make. I didn't think of it as an amends. I was still a drunk at that point, but I did know that I had to, had to apologize and make things better for her and also give her permission to let go so that she could pass on. And, um, and she did while I was there. So, you know, I had a little bit of inheritance from her, a little bit of money from the, from the job, and I was let go. And I was such a drunk at that point that I really, when I'd wake up in the morning, I would be shaking. And the only way to stop shaking was to, was to have a drink, have some uh, vodka or something like that, um, perhaps in my coffee. And I had a roommate. In fact, this very first fellow that I met at the bar had become my roommate by that point in my uh, house in Mid-City. And um, he also wasn't working, but he was, he was trying to find work. I was not. I had no, no intention. I, I had no desire or ability to go out and look for work at that point. I mean, I was a mess. I was just, I'd been destroyed by alcohol and um, had enough money to get by for a little while, um, actually for a bit more than a year. And, um, you know, I, I, um, I, I didn't try to get unemployment, although I was eligible for it. But by the time I tried to get it, it was too late. My eligibility had expired. Um, so I really had nothing coming in. Um, my roommate did not know that the money that he was giving me to um, for rent and for uh, expenses was going right into my pocket, right into the right down to the bar, or actually got to be right to the right aid, where I would get these big bottles of booze with a handle on them because they um, were a lot cheaper than than drinking at the bar at that point. But I could see that the that the money was running out and. Um, was only going to last a certain length of time. I had become a statistician by that time. And um, <laughs> so I, I could kind of forecast when the money would, would stop being there. And it was going to be um, between Thanksgiving and Christmas of that year. So I had I, I started formulating a plan because, you know, I, I saw people on the street um, in their filth and in their homelessness. And... Um, yeah, I didn't know any of these people. I, I didn't know what what that was like. I didn't know what it was to be homeless, but I knew I wasn't going to be that guy. And so um, that was just not going to happen. I did know that I wasn't going to keep this apartment forever. You know, they would be coming up the steps to turn off the lights, and I would gather just enough money together to give to the guy that they wouldn't turn off the lights. And I would go on to the next month when I would get money from Roger to pay the rent, which I would not use for the rent and uh, would use for other purpose. I would rob Peter to pay Paul to keep the lights on and the water on and the utilities working. Um, but as I said, I was, I was not paying rent. And um, I you know, knew that the marshal would be, would, would be on their way soon. I, I got the eviction notice, which I didn't tell Roger about. And um, I realized that I, that, that the, my, the only way out of it was to kill myself. And I mean, I made a logical choice. I was, I was gonna do that. And I was gonna do it in a way that was gonna least impact other people. 
um, you know, if I if I hanged myself, that was going to be something that somebody's going to find that's going to traumatize them. Um, if I shot myself, that was going to make a mess that somebody would have to clean up. Um, you know, any anything that I could think of that I could do was was going to cause people greater pain than I needed to do. Well, I had just I had realized years before when I started taking public transportation because gosh, I had lost my car some time before that. Um, that the the trains when they first came into a, to a train station were coming at a pretty good rate, and they didn't really apply the brakes hard until they were until they were actually entering the station. So I realized that the best way to um, kill myself was to jump in front of one of those trains. And there wasn't like an ideation at the time. It was just a matter of fact. It was something I noticed that if somebody was going to kill themselves, the, the perfect way to do it would be to jump into one in front of one of those subway trains just as it was entering a station, preferably without having to make a turn just before and slow down if they were coming in at the, the fastest speed possible. And so I, I kind of decided as the money was running out, as that time was coming, um, what station I would, I would use. And the station where the train seemed to be coming in at the fastest rate was uh, the Hollywood and Glyne station as they were coming from uh, downtown heading into Hollywood. Um, that that was a fairly straight piece of track before the, before the station. And the only place I could think of where they came into the station faster was in like Universal City or North Hollywood, but um, nobody'd want to die in the valley. You know, I certainly didn't. And um, no, I, I, I decided I would go to Hollywood and Vine and, and die properly um, in, in that train station. Well, I, I went to the bar one day and um, it was going to be my last day. That was the day I was going to do it. And I got there and there were a whole lot of people there that I knew. So um, I, I only had enough money for one or two drinks. And so I had my one or two drinks, but then people started buying me drinks and buying me drinks and buying me more drinks. And I'm getting pretty drunk. And so I, I decided to make my way down to the station, but before I did, I went by um, McDonald's for a final meal. And I had a, both a Big Mac and a quarter pounder with cheese as my last supper. And um, went back to the, to the train station, bought my ticket, went down in the hole and, um, and waited for a train to come by. Well. I was too drunk. I, I really, I, I, I had always thought about what was it like mentally? What was it like at the, at the very time of death? And, um, you know, was it going to be a, a very short thing? It would just be over or was it going to be a long drawn out thing? Um, you know, I just didn't know. I didn't know how, what the experience was going to be like. And I was too drunk to be able to appreciate it. I decided no, that wasn't the time to do it. So I went home. I took a nap. I slept the night and then got up the next morning, went back to the bar. Um, and I, uh, I didn't drink so much that day. I, there weren't so many people there. And I only had like two drinks over the course of four or five hours. And um, then I got up the courage and left the bar, went down, bought my ticket, went down into the subway station. And um, one train was coming into the station. I went, let that train pass. And as the next train came in, I stepped to the edge of the um of the of the walkway and just as it came into the station i stepped forward and the train ran into me ran over me and um i uh i woke up i don't know how much longer later 
uh, underneath the train with a bunch of paramedics around me. Uh, I had failed to, to commit suicide by jumping in front of the train. Um, it knocked me under the train and then I missed the wheels and, um, and they were, you know, they were uh, down there trying to save my life. And my first and only thought was, oh shit, I can't even do this right. I even failed at killing myself. And I, I, I was just, I was angry, but you know, what can you do? So um, I, I was there, they're bandaging me up, putting me on a stretcher, lifting me up, you know, onto the platform and then and took me out of the, out of the um, train station and um, took me to Cedar sinai I was awake the whole um, way to the hospital. And when I got to the hospital, they very quickly uh, knocked me out. And I was out, I think, for three or four days. And um, when I woke, I, um, I, I was in intensive care. And the nurse uh, was glad to see me awake and said, you know, you, you look for a reason. And I said, I know. And I, I didn't know why I said that. I don't know why I said that. I said, I know. And, um, and then I went back out again. I don't know how long I was out before I, before I came to. Um, I was in that hospital for, uh, gosh, I guess seven weeks. I had many operations. Um, <clears throat> I lost my eye uh, in the process. I did this damage to my face. And, um, but, you know, luckily I, my, my brain wasn't damaged. My spinal cord wasn't damaged. Uh, I did have several breaks of bones and that sort of thing. And, you know, I've been living with the, with the, the pains of that ever since. But um, I was remarkably unharmed for a person who had gotten hit by a train. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't know how that happened. At any rate, I, um, I was in the hospital for, for a while. My um, roommate and our neighbors, who were also good friends of ours, um, didn't know where I was. I had, I had vanished and they couldn't find me. And interestingly, um, it was, it was my, my neighbor who looked at the front page of um, the local section of the LA Times a couple of days later and saw a picture of me, he recognized me. My face was all bandaged up, uh, but my chest was bare. And I have a, I have a uh, tattoo that I'd gotten uh, some years before of um, the um, Cheshire cat. And my, my friend looked at it and said, oh my God, that's Ron, and realized who it was. And then through the newspaper article, was able to find that I was at Cedar sinai and, and they came down and, and found me there and visited me. Um, well, meanwhile, uh, while I'm trying to get better, I mean, you know, in pretty sad shape, actually, <clears throat> the, um, the inevitable happened. The marshals came and um, and threw Roger out. We were we had been evicted, and they were they were there to, to move us out. And um, Roger and my neighbors uh, did the best they could to save as many things as they could. But um, but yeah, that was that was the end of that. And of course, um, Roger became very very angry with me. He had been very um, upset about my condition. But then he became very angry with me and stopped visiting me, not surprisingly. And um, I, uh, I slowly recovered. You know, the funny thing is I never, I never lost my sense of humor. It, they, they had to extract my eye because if I, if I could see anything, um, it, 
the um, I mean, if the eye was there and I couldn't see anything, let's put it that way. If I, my eye was there and I couldn't see anything, my brain would exert all the energy it could into trying to make that eye work to the point that the other eye would go blind. And so they had to extract the eye within a certain period of time in order to save the other, the vision of the other eye. And so the, the doctor said that's what they were going to do. And they were going to do some other work on my face at the same time. I had several surgeries under the same anesthesia that day. And um, the next day, the doctor came to, um, to examine his work. And so he took this pen light that he had in his, his pocket and used it to look around in the, in the hole they had made. And, um, and I said, oh, my God, that's bright. And he, he was taken aback. He said, you can see that? I said, no, I can't see that. I was just joking with you. And um, he, he got a little bit of a kick out of that after the, the first shock. Um, but I, I never lost my sense of humor. I never, ever lost my sense of humor. I don't know. I think that, that was one of my saving graces, perhaps. But um, anyway, I was in the hospital. They moved me over to psychiatry at one point. And I, I told them, I'm, I'm not ready for psychiatry. I need to fit, put all my energy into physically healing. I can't put a whole lot of energy into, into psychologically healing. I just can't do it. I can't, can't put energy into both things and have both of them work. And um, sure enough, I, while I was in psychiatry, I got a, an infection that um, needed treatment back at the hospital. So they, it took them a couple of days actually to find me space in the hospital to go back and, um, and to treat me for this infection. And, uh, they also, I didn't need hospital, intensive hospital care for that long. And um, so they were going to release me. But the problem was that I had to be on, um, on IV antibiotics for a period of time after that. And I, you know, I, I was homeless at that point. I had no place to go. And um, if I, I really needed to go to a rehab, but no rehab would take me with, a, with an IV needle stuck into me. So they, um, they put me in a, in a recovery shelter where I stayed for a month uh, while I was getting this IV treatment. And eventually I'm, I did move from there into a rehab and it was a, it was a city funded rehab. They took your, um, your, your general relief, your GR, they took your food stamps um, and they gave you, uh, I think, $20 a month, a check for $20 a month out of that. The rest went into the coffers of the, of the rehab. Um, but I mean, they didn't, didn't charge you for being there. And um, I was there for, for several months. I was there for um, actually over close to six months. And um, then they, they, they threw me out for something that, uh, that make a long story short, I was, I was selling bus tokens because they gave, every time I had a medical appointment, they would give me two bus tokens. Um, but I found that for a quarter, I could get on the, on the um, transportation because of, of my condition. Um, I was disabled. And so uh, I could get a dollar for the bus tokens and I, and I sold them for a dollar and, um, and spent a quarter for the, for the trips. I didn't know that that was against uh, uh, policy of this place. So I was quite surprised when they decided to throw me out for that. Um, and uh, I, I moved to a, um, to a transitional house, uh, a Christian transitional house. Well, okay, 
flashback to being in the hospital. They had H&I, they had hospitals and institutions that would come and have meetings. And um, they'd ask me if I'd want to be there. And I'd say, no, I don't want to be there. It's not, I knew that I would be involved in AA the rest of my life, but I just wasn't ready to put that energy into that kind of recovery. I just needed to concentrate on physically healing. And um, they got me into a couple of those sessions, but not, not too many of them. Um, but I mean, once I was in rehab, you know, I knew that I was clearly going to live. And if I was going to live, I had to live sober. There was just no way around it. I had to live sober. And so I put everything I could into, into recovery at the rehab. And that meant doing what they told me to do. And that meant um, in, in, including the, the religious side of it, including the, um, the, the turning things over to God and to, and to trying to understand God in whatever way that they said the God of my understanding, but they really meant a Judeo-Christian God. Um, I had been an atheist all my life, but you know, there were some things that happened during recovery that made me think, eh, you know, there could be a, a supreme being. I don't know. Maybe I did live for a reason. I don't know. So I, I, I really put my effort into that recovery um, with, with God, the very traditional recovery. And, um, and it was effective. I did the steps in a traditional way. I had a, a traditional sponsor um, who, uh, who, interestingly, was writing an article. He's a, he was a, a freelance uh, journalist at the time. And he was writing an article about um, train drivers who hit people on the tracks and what it does to them. And when he heard my story the, that I had survived being hit by a train, he asked if at some point I'd be willing to be interviewed. And I said, sure. And so we actually did that while I was in the transitional house. And he wrote an article that appeared as a long form article in the LA magazine. Um, and um, so I don't know how I got sidetracked. Anyway, I was in, I was in the um, transitional house. So I was in the transitional house for, I guess, about six months, nine months, something like that. And the, um, the house manager went out. He, um, he, he had, was having marital, marital difficulties and he used crack. And he was um, very honest about it and went to the bosses and said, you know, I can't, I can't be the, the boss here anymore. I've, I've gone out, I've, I've relapsed. And so they needed to find a manager real quick. And um, they asked me if I would manage the house. And I said, no, <laughs> no, I did not want to do that. That was the last thing I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, every, every reason I gave for not wanting to do it in their case was a reason for me to do it. It was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be anybody's spiritual guide. Well, no, 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 we're here to do that. The thing was run by pastors and no, we, we, we'll, we'll give the spiritual guidance. You don't need to do that. And I don't, you know, I said, I don't want to discipline people. Well, no, you don't have to do that. You just have to document what happens and we'll take care of the discipline. And, you know, just every, everything I said was they had a counter for. And so I went to my sponsor and I, I said, um, Chaz, tell me why I shouldn't do this. And he said, Ron, I don't play those games. You know that. He said, let's, let's do the steps on it. I said, what steps? And he, he said, um, do the, do the 12th step. I said, carry the message to other alcoholics. He said, no, practice these principles in all of our affairs. Um, 
so what do we need to do? Well, we need to do a, a fourth step and to see where you have resentments uh, around this and um, a fifth step to let him go. And, you know, all this, all, we, we, went through, we went through some steps on the very specific parts of uh, what I needed to get through. And then um, it worked and there was no reason that I shouldn't be manager and I, I took on the job and ended up doing it for about five years. Um, for precious little money, but, um, but, you know, freedom to come and go and um, a place to live for the next several years. And it was, it was a good thing. My, my point being uh, that my recovery was, was very, very slow and very deliberate. And, um, you know, I, I, did, I did the 12 steps um, between my time in rehab and my time at Hope Again. I helped other guys through their 12 steps while they were at Hope Again. The Hope Again was not a um, drug and alcohol recovery place. So it was a transitional house uh, for anybody that, that was homeless and needed to transition to finding work and finding a place to live, finding more permanent, uh, more permanent life situation. And um, of all the people I knew when I was there, a few people, a few of us actually did. Um, not that many, but you know, none of those places are highly um, uh, effective, really. It, it depends on what you put into it. And I put a lot into it because I knew that, as I say, if I was gonna live, I had to live sober. To drink was to die. And I, I just had to, um, had to make steps, little steps, a little bit at a time. I was allowed even during my early days at the, at the um, transitional house to go to outside meetings where everybody else had to stay in under lockdown for two months. I was going to meetings five times a week. And, um, you know, that was the only way that the, um, the, the, the therapist uh, would allow me to come in was if I was going to be able to go to my AA meetings that I'd already established a relationship with. Um, little did they know that my, my main one was a Friday night way agnostics meeting um, in, in East Hollywood. Um, and where I found that people really didn't need to have a higher power. They didn't need to have a God in order to recover. But they were able to recover on their own terms. Um, they were able to recover by learning from each other rather than just doing what um, some AA guru said was the right thing to do. And um, so my, my recovery really started moving by leaps and bounds from discovering the We Agnostics meeting. There's a fellow that uh, I know some of you, some of you know, a fellow named Richard that shows up at our Friday night meeting. And uh, he was with me in rehab, and he's been my, my very good friend from the time I got out of the hospital uh, to this day. And we have, we have very different paths, but we do share the, the desire to recover and the, the will to recover. And, the, and, um, and we, we both are doing extremely well, I think. Um, he is in a, in a, a welfare hotel in Skid Row, and it's his, the first time that he's had a place of his own for most of his life. And he is so proud of his little place. Um, my recovery has gone a little bit, a little bit better. I have a, a pretty good job um, with a uh, hardware store and home improvement center. And um, I, um, I've progressed there from a minimum wage, you know, assistant to um, being the controller and, and um, chief financial, financial officer there. Um, and so, you know, our, our, our paths have gone down very different lines. We have very different skills, but we were, we were both able to, to progress 
um, and to get stronger in our in our um, recovery all along. Um, I've left out huge parts of my story. This is the longest that I've spoken in a in a very long time, and I, I thought it was only right because you know so many of you are people that I know that just haven't heard the whole the whole story, and you still haven't heard the whole story, but you've heard quite a bit of it. And um, you know, I uh, there's a lot lot more to it than that. A lot of it had to do with with gay recovery at the AT Center. I went to a lot of meetings at the AT Center uh, during my early recovery time. Um, I uh, went to went to some more traditional meetings, but I lean more and more towards the agnostic, uh, the free thinker, the the secular meetings. And I do to this day. You know, even when I was experimenting with my belief in God, in a in a Judeo Christian God, I still preferred the secular meetings, not because it was a bunch of atheists, but because it was a bunch of people that that didn't care what my what my religion was. They just cared about the fact that I was making steps in the right direction. And um, as far as my recovery went, um, the, the religiosity of, of the situation was, was irrelevant to the recovery. And I still think that that's true. I think that our, our religiosity is, is most irrelevant um, to our recovery. I think that um, alcoholism is a disease and it's a, a disease of its, of its own. I think we have a lot of things that may have led us to become alcoholic. We may have had a rough childhood. We may have had ostracization um, growing up. We may, who knows what, what we may have gone through. It may be all kinds of things. And then maybe we still go through all kinds of things. But you know what, there are all kinds, people go through all kinds of things. People have problems and not all of them drink. Um, I, I really think that for me, alcoholism and my other and my other issues are, are are quite separate. And I can't treat my other issues until I until I treat my alcoholism effectively. And that has been the case. I since I've been sober, I've been I haven't had a drink for a little over ten years. And during that whole time, I I keep getting better I've in in very small baby steps uh, in my in other ways, but. Um, if none of none of no no back step, I don't think any back step in my personal development would cause me to drink. I think I've gotten a pretty good handle on that. But to be sure that I keep an handle on that, I, I go to these meetings, and I think the meetings are very important to me because there's nobody outside of the meetings who really understands my situation. There's not a sober person who understands what it's like to be an alcoholic, just as no white person will ever know what it's like to be black, just as no Gentile will know what it's like to be a Jew. Um, we we can, can appreciate each other's differences, but we can't walk in the other person's shoes. We just, we just can't. And, um, and that's fine. You know, that's just fine. Uh, the point is that we have to respect each other and when I need to be to to share from the depth of my heart, from the depth of my soul, I need to be around people who understand where that's coming from. Um, you know, who can who can laugh at the joke of being blinded by a, a, a light and a non-existent eye. You know, that's we we laugh at our foibles, we laugh at our problems, and um, and and but we share, and we share with with absolute honesty and absolute integrity. And um, and if what 
you you say makes a difference in how I feel, that's wonderful. And if it has nothing to do with how I feel, that's fine too. Because, you know, we, we have that respect with each other. So I've spoken for a good 45 minutes. It's about as long as I can go on without, um, without taking a breath. Uh, I don't know the nature of this meeting. I don't know the format of the meeting. Um, and because I don't know the nature of the format, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer something that may or may not be common. I'm going to offer a little time for question and answer. If anybody would like to, um, to ask me anything about the story that I've told you or anything you know or don't know about me. <laughs> 